Well, as I said before, we have been working through this epistle of 3 John. And one of the reasons why we have chosen this epistle of 3 John, because I am convinced that much of what we see by way of church life is comprehended in this very short epistle. We have the reality of the gospel truth, men who were preaching and proclaiming the truth. We have the relationship that we all sustain before the truth, some embracing it, some supporting it, some hindering it, sadly. We see the reality all too often, not only in John's day, but in our own day, of the sad fact that oftentimes there is conflict and, and, and disagreement and, and hardship within the church. And we see that in that man, Diotrephes, who we'll consider next week, Lord willing. But what we also see is this element of Christian affection that is very, very encouraging to see. Here is the Apostle John writing to this man, Gaius, in the most tender of terms. That's why we described Gaius last week as the beloved Gaius. John calls Gaius beloved a number of times. And what he does in verse 2 of this epistle is he offers a prayer on behalf of Gaius that is just wonderful. And the prayer, as you see it here on the page of Scripture, is essentially this. Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, <clears throat> Excuse me, even as thy soul prospereth. The English Standard Version reads as follows. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. Well, what we have here is essentially a prayer. It's interesting because when we look at the epistle and we consider how epistles were written in that day, this epistle of John follows the form that was very common in that day. You would have an introduction, you would have an expressed wish for well-being, and then you would get into the body or the business of the letter, we might say. And so there is a sense in which John is following the forms of his day. But in following the forms of his day, he's not merely following the forms of the day. He is sprinkling the forms of the day with great grace of the gospel. And as I like to do, even very early in a sermon, is to make a point of application. In those things which seem mundane in life, you and I can sprinkle the grace of the gospel in those things. In your going about your daily business, you can bring to bear something of the fragrance of the gospel in your activity. This is exactly what John does here. You know, it's kind of interesting that when we look at this passage of Scripture here, again, this second verse of 3 John, there are, what I would say, two um, approaches to this text that we have to be aware of. One approach to this text is kind of brought to our attention uh, through what are known in our day as prosperity preachers. Individuals who look at this passage of Scripture and say to us that it is God's will that you be healthy, wealthy, and wise. That it's God's will and it's the mark of God's blessing on you if you have great material substance in your possession. And we would say, well, I don't think that God is necessarily looking for me to be impoverished, but I don't think that that's really the intent of what this passage of Scripture is. But there's another kind of approach to this passage of Scripture that I want to give some caution to. And this approach to the passage of Scripture is a little more scholarly. And it approaches this second verse along these lines, much like I had already introduced the passage. And the passage in the, in, the, uh, in the approach says this. What John is doing is he is using the forms of letter writing that were common in his day. And that John is really doing what we would do when we say to whom it may concern. 
or when we write, dear brother so-and-so. And I think that is an approach that we really cannot embrace fully. Because to think that this godly man, John, would be reduced to mere formality and letter writing would be to misunderstand and not at all grasp what the thrust of what we have here. Because this introduction to this letter is a true prayer by John on behalf of Gaius that he might know that blessed experience of soul prosperity. And so what I want to do is I want to introduce you to this idea of soul prosperity if you're not already familiar with it. And I want to open this up to you and show to you that you and I can enjoy that blessed experience of having a soul that flourishes before God. A soul that is full of the blessing of God. A soul that knows what it is to be in intimate communion with our, with our Lord Jesus Christ. And so because of that, this passage of scripture is a very, very encouraging passage of scripture. It's something of a pattern. It's a pattern not only of Christian affection, it's a pattern of our prayers one for another. That we ought to be praying one for another. That our whole situation in life ought to be up to what our soul is all about. Our soul as it prospers is really the mark of what true blessing is. And so what I want to set before you then is essentially this principle or this point. That it, is the, it, that it should be the prayer of every true child of God that their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ should enjoy soul prosperity. When was the last time you prayed for your brother or sister in Christ that their soul would prosper? When was the last time that you took steps to make sure that your soul prospered before God? And so what I hope to do, as I said before, is to open up to you uh, this great theme of soul prosperity. And to do that, I want to use a three-point outline. And the outline is somewhat simple, but it's essentially this. Number one, I want you to understand that every one of us possesses a soul. I don't think that that would be a controversial thing to say in a congregation of, of Jesus Christ, a, a church of Jesus Christ. It wouldn't be a controversial thing to say. But I think we're living in a day more and more where we must affirm and assert the reality of the soul. The man is more than just a material being. That man is comprised of body and soul. And so we want to take a look at what the scriptures say about the soul of man. The second thing I want you to consider with me is the question, what is the state of your soul? What is the state of your soul as it stands right now? Because in a very real way, John's prayer, you have to understand, is that your outward circumstances would be commensurate with the inward circumstances of your soul. That your outward circumstances would be parallel to that of the circumstances of your soul. For some people, that might not be a blessing. For some people, that might bring poverty. If your outward state matched the inward state of your soul, how would your state be? How would your condition be? In John's prayer, prioritizing the soul is saying, Gaius, I know your soul is doing well. And my prayer for you is that all of the circumstances of your life would be up to what your soul is experiencing right now. And so we have to ask, what is the state of your soul? And then thirdly, we want to consider is... Every one of us ought to pray 
and ought to work toward the prospering of the soul. So let's consider each and every one of these things. And the first thing I want you to be aware of is the fact, as I said before, that every one of us has a soul. Do you see in this passage of scripture how John is emphasizing the priority of the soul? That whatever we are as persons, there is a sense in which we ought to prioritize the fact that we have eternal souls. I think in the day and age in which we live, it's very easy to prioritize who and what we are as persons by way of our physical makeup. We have things going well or going bad depending on how things affect our physical well-being. If we are under the weather, again, we're not feeling too good. If things are going our way, we're elated. And so oftentimes what we do is we prioritize the body. We prioritize the material. But what we see over and over again in the scripture is that the scripture puts priority upon the soul. Over and over again, the scripture reminds us that it's not to be the body that directs the soul. It's to be the soul that directs the body. And in a sense, we can say this. That their true understanding of persons as given to us in the scripture is that the body is to be the instrument of the soul rather rather than the soul being the slave of the body. Have you considered your life in that fashion? Have you considered your life as being an instrument whereby the soul attached to God, a soul in love with Jesus Christ can work out the purpose of God in this world through the body that was given to you? We're, we, 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 are, we are appealed to and we are tempted in so many ways in the society in which we live that the body is everything. Now, we're not going to fall into the trap to think that the body is nothing. The body is a great blessing. One of the things that we see by way of the Christian faith is that the body is very significant and that even when this body decays, there is the hope of the resurrection. Over and over again in the scripture, it's not just the body being free, excuse me, for the soul being free from the body, it's the body in its resurrected and glorified state. And so what we see though is that while man is this combination of both body and soul, there is to be a priority always that is given to the soul. And I would again put it to you like this, please consider as you think of yourself, not your soul and subject to the whims of your body, but your body as an instrument of the soul that God has placed within you. What a different way of looking at life. What a useful way of looking at life. What a way to glorify God in our bodies in this way. And so again, we see the reality, not only that every one of us has a soul, but that the soul is prioritized in the scripture. Well, this leads us to the obvious question. What is the soul? What is the soul? Well, we can define it or explain it in a somewhat simple fashion, and we can go into a little more detail. And I want to do exactly that. Not much detail today. This will not be any kind of a full-blown discussion of the nature of the soul. But I do want to bring to your attention some of the things that we see by way of what the Bible says about the soul. One of the uh, helpful uh, definitions uh, of, this, um, of this matter concerning the soul I found from uh, James Usher. And Archbishop, uh, Archbishop Usher says this about the soul in his catechism. He asked the question, what is the soul? And he responds as follows. The inward and spiritual part of man, which is immortal and can never die. What is the soul? It is the inward and spiritual part of man which can never die. A very simple definition or explanation of the soul. 
no real uh, 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 difficult idea presented there, uh, no real struggling for, to find out words that he means. It's very simple and straightforward. It is that immaterial part of the body, the spiritual part of who you are that abides forever. That's one of the ways in which we can understand the soul. Another definition that we have of the soul is given as follows. Given as follows. The soul can be considered as the life force of the person and often refers to the person's whole being. It, can, it needs to be sustained in order for life to thrive. And it is the seat of desires, emotions, and the will. The soul can be an intimate relationship with God or it can be under God's judgment. And many times the way we perceive how we feel has to do with how we perceive our soul is with God. Well, the question is, how is your soul before God this day? John Bunyan says this about the soul. He has a small work entitled The Greatness of the Soul. And he says this concerning the soul. He says, therefore, by the soul, we understand the spiritual, the best, the most noble part of, uh, I'm sorry, the spiritual, the best, the most noble part of man as distinct from the body. Even that by which we understand, imagine, reason in this course. The body is but a poor, empty vessel without this great thing called the soul. Therefore, it is the chief and most noble part of man. Now, the first time that we come in uh, in contact with the word soul in the Bible was taken from Genesis and the creation of man. And in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, we read the following. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. There was man prior to the breath of God being placed in him. What was he? He was a lump of clay. I always find it interesting that when we read the, the scientists of our day, sadly atheistic scientists, they remind us that everything that we find in the human body can be found in the ground, in the dirt. They remind us that there is so much by way of the elemental structure of, of the body, the stuff is in the ground. And they think that they're giving us some kind of insight into evolution. But I wonder, did anybody ever tell them about Genesis 2-7? Yeah, God created man out of the dust of the ground. The Bible tells us that. But isn't it something that the Bible tells us that man, while he was formed out of the clump, out of the clay of the ground, is not just a clump of clay. That there is something about man and his inherent dignity as being made in the image of God. There's something about man and the nobility of who he is. There's something about man because God at a point in time breathed in him and he became a living soul. The principle of life. And so I would say this about the soul. That the words, uh, I would say this about the soul, that the soul is the principle of life breathed into man of creation, making man more than just a lump of clay, but a living being made in the image of God with abilities to function as God designed and to commune with God as God desires. And therefore, all attempts to deny that man is a soul is an attempt to divorce man from his ultimate accountability before God. Isn't this the, isn't this the case? Man doesn't want this idea that he is a, an eternal soul because he doesn't want to have to deal with the idea that as an eternal soul, as the real him or her, he or she must stand before God. But this is one thing that the scriptures will not let us get away from. 
This is something that our own conscience will not let us get away from. There is that which resonates within man, this great fact that whatever else I am, I am, and that there is a reality about this existence that will go on beyond this thing that we call physical life. And so again, all these things concerning the soul. Now the Bible has much to say about the soul as we would, you know, think and rightly gather. Uh, The word soul is used over 400 times in the Bible. It's interesting in the various ways in which it's used for uh, the way the Bible uses the word soul. Sometimes it's used for the totality of the person. The person can be a soul, that soul, that person. Sometimes the Bible refers it to that, as I said before, the immaterial part of man, that part of man that communes with God, that part of man which, which reasons with himself. And so, as I said before, the Bible uses the word soul in a variety of ways. But as we look at the biblical testimony concerning the soul, we begin to discern a number of points, a number of very important truths, teaching points, we might say, concerning the nature of the soul. And I want to just go over some of them with you. And what I want you to see and understand is, again, the following. The first thing I want you to be aware of is this, is that the soul can experience sorrow. We see this in none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. A very important idea, one of the things that we would have to keep in the back of our mind. This is one of those passages of Scripture that makes us realize that Jesus Christ indeed is truly man. That there was no phantom named Jesus of Nazareth, that he was fully human. And we see this in the expression of what we find concerning his soul. In Mark chapter 14, verse 34, he says this, And he saith unto them, My soul was exceedingly sorrowful unto death. My soul was exceedingly sorrowful unto death. Here is something in the experience of the soul of man that goes deeper than just outward experiences. Here is something in the nature of the soul that is able to be pierced with pain and sorrow. Here is that immaterial part of man in suffering and sorrow. That's what the Bible tells us about the soul. And you know what that is in the soul, don't you? You know what it is to have physical pain. You know what it is to have soul pain. And this is what the scriptures teaches us about the soul. It can experience sorrow. In the Lord Jesus Christ, also we see that the soul, his soul was troubled. John chapter 12, verse 27, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Here we have that, that anxiety of mind, that, 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 that coming together of all these various things that are contrary to our desires and to our wills, and we find ourselves in such a way where the soul not only, now not only is sorrowful, but it's troubled as well. Oh, what a, what a sad sight it is to see a troubled soul. We speak sometimes along, the, along those ways, don't we? We see an individual who's had nothing but misery in his life, or his or her life, and what do we say? Oh, what, she, she's a troubled soul. Down in the depth of her being, she has all these difficulties, and everything seems to be going against her. Again, this idea that the soul can experience not only trouble, but it can experience sorrow as well. Now, again, the the soul can also, in a very real way, experience what what I would call internal vexation and warfare. The soul can experience internal vexation and warfare. And the passages for this are, are particularly applicable to the life of the Christian. Particularly, again, applicable to the life of the Christian. Why do I say that? Well, the two passages from, from, uh, from Peter. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 8 says this about Lot. That righteous man dwelling among them 
and in seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. Now this is the reference you remember concerning Lot in Sodom. And here was Lot in Sodom who when we read the account in Genesis 19 would probably never deduce that Lot was a saved man or a righteous man. But here in Second Peter, we see that the description of Lot is given in such a way as to give us insight into his spiritual nature. And one of the things that Lot had to contend with was this vexation of soul of seeing sin all around him. Can you identify with that in the day and age in which we live? Can you, from a truly humble frame of mind, say that your righteous soul is vexed with the rise of sin and iniquity that we see. And if our soul is not vexed over sin in others and in ourselves, we must wonder what the state of the soul is. And so Peter, again, experiencing this vexation of soul, Peter writes by way of warning to his fellow Christians, And what does he say? Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. This is something, again, only the Christian can identify with. Because the non-Christian sees fleshly lust as entertainments to the soul. But the Christian sees fleshly lust as that which war against the soul. Can you take that kind of a stand against those things which would entice you away from your God? which would rob you of your love for Jesus Christ. You see, the warfare of the soul is a warfare because the Spirit of God has come within the soul by way of regeneration and by way of the work of Jesus Christ. And so I ask you the question, in all of your going through life, have you experienced this warfare? Brothers and sisters, please don't tell me that you haven't experienced this warfare. Please don't tell me that. Because it means that there's no spiritual life within you. This warfare is a warfare that only those who have embraced Christ by faith. And so the question comes before us. Are you engaged in this battle which says to a fallen world and to a Satan who hates your soul, I have taken my stand with Jesus Christ in this world. That Jesus Christ has saved me from my own sin and saved me from a world of hell. Excuse me, from, from, uh, from, an, from an eternal hell. And so again, this idea that the soul can be vexed, the soul can be engaged in warfare. We also see that the soul can commune, can, can commune with itself. The soul can reason with itself. In this sense, we see that the, that the soul seems to be that place where we find the conscience of man as well. I've said this about the conscience. The conscience is the you that speaks to you. The conscience is the you that evaluates you. Well, there's a sense in which the soul can commune with itself. And we see this in Luke chapter 12, verse 19. And this is the account of that rich man who was doing very well in life. He was getting on in life. He was getting to that place, probably what we would call in our day, getting ready to retire. And he's asking himself some, some important questions. And maybe if he had a financial advisor there, the financial advisor would be saying, you're asking all the right questions. And so the man asked himself these questions. What am I going to do with all my riches? How am I going to conduct my financial affairs? And the Lord Jesus Christ says about this man, those woeful words in Luke chapter 12, verse 19. 
He said, well, again, the, the, the soul, uh, the, the man says this within himself. I will say to my soul, soul, thou hast, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. In other words, the financial outlook is very bright. You have enough to live out your days in ease and happiness. And as the soul communes with the soul, but when the soul communes with the soul and not considers the soul as it stands before God, something else is said about the soul. And you remember what our Lord Jesus Christ said in Luke chapter, the next verse. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall those things be which thou hast provided? What a sad thing to hear from our Lord Jesus Christ. How fool. This man who was wise in, in, his, in, in the conducting of his affairs. This man who was wise in the eyes of the world. This man who did much by way of good sense in this world took no account of his soul. And you see, God will one day require that the soul stand before him in judgment and evaluation. And when the soul is required of you, where will you be? How will you stand in that day? And so all these things concerning the soul. This is why we say that the soul is the person's most valuable possession. You know the words of our Lord Jesus Christ here in Mark chapter 8, verses 36 and 37. What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? The soul values be, uh, valuable beyond description. The idea then that the thing that you need to understand is that not only... Can the soul, not only is the soul ultimately valuable, but the soul can also be saved. And that's what I want you to see and understand. And that's in one sense the great thrust of all of our discussions about the soul. The soul can be saved. James talks about those who interact with sinners and pulling them out in order that their souls might be saved. There is that whole truth that you and I can commit our souls unto a faithful creator. And so I ask you the question, and I, leave, and I don't want to leave the question with you, but I ask you to interact with this question. Oh, will you commit your soul to a faithful creator? Will you commit your soul to a redeemer who loved you? Will you commit your soul to the spirit of God who will always seek that your soul prospers? You see, you can do something with this eternal soul that God gave you. You can commit it to a faithful creator. You can make sure that on that day, that last day, that God will not say of you, thou fool. But God will say of you, come, my beloved son, my beloved daughter, enter into the joy. You see again the soul of man. And so when we come to this passage of scripture where John is praying for the prosperity of Gaius' soul, we are reminded very clearly here that man is not only a body, but man is a soul as well. And that this soul is that which we ought to take great care for. And again, John is, 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 is working in this direction. John is very, again, uh, concerned not only for the physical well-being of, uh, of guys, but also for his, uh, for his physical uh, well-being as well. And so then, having considered, again, the reality of the soul, we ask ourselves the question. And again, the question is, is something of a point of application here. As, as I said before, how does it stand with your soul? We sing the hymn sometimes, don't we? Nothing between my soul and the Savior. Nothing between. Oh, what a wonderful thought. No sin that's between me and the Savior. No ill thought that's between me and the Savior. No prized idol bound up in the heart between me and the Savior. No cavern of the heart left unexposed to the light of God's penetrating love between my soul and the Savior. 
How goes it then with the soul? When I ask you the question that I asked you before, would this prayer be a curse to you if John prayed it for you? You know, there's a sense in which when we ask people to pray for us, you know those kind of people that you ask to pray for you. You ask those people who in your mind you think, okay, if, if God's going to hear anybody's prayer, they're going to hear this one's prayer. And oftentimes, I have to say it, who, who do we go to? Oftentimes, who is it? We go to moms, don't we? Here it is Mother's Day. And you go to mom for prayer. Because you think, man, if, God, if, 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 if anybody has God's ear, it's mom. And so again, you, you, you ask to pray. But let me ask you this. If your mother prayed for you like John is praying for, for Gaius, my prayer for you is that your outward state would match the inward state of your soul. Where would you be? Would some of you be homeless? Would some of you be in poverty? Would some of you be on life support? Where would you be? But this prayer is not meant to be a curse. It's meant to be a blessing. And it reminds us that the soul can be taken care of. And it reminds us that the soul can be healthy. And it reminds us that the soul can be revived. And it reminds us that above all things, God is very much concerned with our soul and the state of our soul. So I ask you the question, how goes it with your soul today? Can, can this prayer be a blessing to you? That your outward circumstances would be comparable to, your, to the inward state of your soul? I hope and I pray that it is. And so again, this idea of man being a soul, this idea that we must ask ourselves concerning the state of the soul, this leads us to the third point then, which is essentially this, that every one of us ought to be praying for the prosperity of the soul. Every one of us ought to be praying for the prosperity of the soul. As I said before, this letter is kind of a pattern of Christian affection, but also Christian praying. Again, John is a very is a, is, is, is just a, a man who... who Excuse me, who love just flows from. And it's interesting because when we know something about the nature of the Apostle John, we know that, again, just by natural course of events, John was not a very loving kind of a man. You remember that account in the Gospels when the, when the, um, uh, when the Samaritans were not ready to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. What does John say with his brothers? Lord, shall we call down fire upon them? And the Lord Jesus Christ has to look at him and say, you know not what manner of person you are, for the Son of Man has not come to destroy life, but to save life. But there was zealous John. We'll call down fire in this place if they don't receive you. But now look at John. Here is John, this man of great love, this man of great affection. He's a pattern for us. And John prays again, Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest, that thou, that thou mayest uh, prosper, even as thy soul prospers. So this means that we can again pray for this prosperity of the soul, of our own soul, and for others as well. But that leads us back to the question, and I tried to give the answer to it earlier, but I'll, I'll, I'll kind of go over this again. What is soul prosperity? What is it, what is it for the soul to be prosperous? And I, I would say this, this, that soul prosperity is that blessed state of the soul in right relationship to God the Father, with love and affection for Jesus Christ growing, and when the work of the Spirit of God, when the Spirit of God Himself is neither being grieved nor quenched. In addition, it can be referred to as the flourishing of the work of God in the soul, touching upon every aspect of our being. Not just the religious aspect of who you are, but every aspect of your being. The life fully under the transforming work and grace of God. That in every element of who you are, 
your mental mind under the, influ- under the influence of the work of the Spirit of God. Your physical well-being upheld by the great grace of God. Your spiritual life aflame for the glory of God. Oh, this is the prosperity of the soul. I've put it like this. You know that your best days are your holiest days. And your holiest days are your best days. And your worst days are your sinning days. You know that. And so again, this idea of soul prosperity. It's put in the scripture in a number of different forms. Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. Whom having, seen, whom having not seen you love, though now you see him not, yet believing you rejoice. And this is that idea of soul prosperity. You rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. There is a prospering soul. Joy unspeakable, bubbling up from the soul and full of glory. Paul talks about it like this in Romans chapter 5. He speaks about the love of God that is shed abroad in our hearts. Paul says in Ephesians, he talks about us being blessed with all spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. Again, this fullness of the work of God in the life, a fullness that we not only read about, a a fullness that we know is in the depths of our soul, even to the point by way of identifying experientially those depths and sorrows that we all know of, now taken up with the heights and elation of being in the presence of God and being before God in such a way as to know that he is mine and I am his. You see, this is the soul prosperity. That prosperity. But if we come back to 3 John here, and I think we do need to do this because I think 3 John really gives us in summary form what it is for the soul to be prosperous. And many of these things we've already covered when we covered uh, Gaius uh, last week. But what we're going to see with Gaius is we, as we're going to see with every individual that we encounter in this third epistle is that it was Gaius's relationship to the truth that really formed the framework of soul prosperity. It was his relation to the truth that formed the framework of his soul prosperity. What do I mean by this? Look at verses three and four. I rejoice greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee, even as thou walkest in the truth. Gaius's prosperity of soul was all bound up in the fact that truth was in him. That it wasn't only that which he had read about and heard about, but the truth was his, as it were. The truth was that which he internalized. We talked about this last week. The truth wasn't just that that stood without, but the truth was that that not only did he have an intimate relation with, he had an internal relationship with it. And so there was a sense in which he would be able to look at the passage, at the word of God and come across a particular passage and say, oh yes, that's God's promise to me. That's the one that I'm holding on to. That's the one that I'm uh, looking forward to God fulfilling in my day. You see, the truth was in him. And the soul prospers when the truth finds residence within the soul. But this is not all that we see. We see not only truth internalized. We see, we see guys was a man, that man who walked in the truth. Isn't that what verse 3 says? What does verse 3 say here again? Even as thou walkest in the truth. Now let me say this. You know over and over again in the scripture that the Christian life, the life of the believers, referred to as a walk. Over and over again. We can go on and again you can have entire sermons, series of sermons on the Christian's walk. This idea that the walk is that outward conduct of life and we all walk in such a way. It's funny sometimes. It's, 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 it's not funny, but it's something to be observed you can tell a lot by a person's walk, can't you? Never see a person walking who just got good news. 
Everything's going their way. I, I almost hate to say this. I remember one day with, with my youngest son, you know, we were had a little thing going. I was barking at him, and he, 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 was, he was barking back. He was kind of manning up. But as soon as he walked out the door, we have a window next to our door. He just like, he walked away like this. He was, he, I could tell how hurt he was. His walk revealed something. Your walk reveals something. Your walk reveals the state of your soul. How are you walking here today? Is the truth that which is being manifested? Is the truth that which is being sent out? You see, Gaius was that man, that authentic Christian. I mentioned this in the past. The life of authenticity is a life that's lived up to the standard of truth that it knows. You're that man, you're that woman that you claim to be. You're that man, you're that woman that you want to be. That's authentic living. That's what Gaius was. Because of this, his soul was prospering. But the other thing that we see here is this, is that Gaius, as, as this man who was in a prosperous state by way of his soul, Gaius became a blessing to those who were around him. He was truly a blessing. Look at how he, look at how he conducted himself with those itinerant preachers. They came back to John's church and they said, that guy, he's, he's, the guy's fantastic. We show up, he provides for us. We get ready to leave, he makes sure that we can get to the next place. He's a wonderful example of biblical hospitality. He's a blood, that man, that person, that woman who is spiritually prospering, he or she is a blessing to all those that they are around. And we see this particularly in the way that John expresses his affection for Gaius when he says this, I have no greater joy. No greater joy in the heart of an apostle? I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk according to the truth. You see, this concept of soul prosperity gives joy to those around, gives joy to those that are responsible, to give joy to those to whom you are accountable or who are accountable for you. And so again, what we see here is that the prosperous soul is a blessing to those who are around. And it's hard to pass over this fourth verse. This isn't on this Mother's Day. I have no greater joy than to hear my children walk in the truth. Isn't this a mother's joy? Isn't this a father's joy to know that their children have taken up the cause of Christ, to know that their children are walking in the truth? Oh, how that this would become a prayer and hopefully a prayer that we shall see come to fruition in our days, that our children will walk in the truth. And so again, this man, Gaius, he's a, he's a blessing to all those around. Why? Because his soul is, is prospering. And that brings us then to some questions. <laughs> How can we know whether or not our soul is prospering? Well, as I said before, we we see it here in this third epistle. Is there a harmony between what we know and what we do? That's soul prosperity. Are we working for the furtherance of the gospel on behalf of others who may be involved in it? That's soul prosperity. Are we charitable to the people of God who are giving themselves over to the service of Christ? That's soul prosperity. Are we fellow helpers in the cause of the truth? That is soul prosperity. But that leads us to a few questions by way of final application. And the questions are the following. Number one, you have to understand 
that you can experience no prosperity of soul if your soul is in debt to God because of sin. Sin in the scripture is often presented to us as a great moral debt before God. There can be no prospering of the soul if the soul is in debt before God. So you must ask yourself the question, how does your soul stand with God? Are you in debt to God because of moral infraction? Are you in debt to God because you have violated his law? Are you in debt before God because you have sinned and not repented of that sin? Are you in debt before God because one day, because because you've chosen in this life to carry this debt with you through this life, but what about that day when payment must be made, all the while ignoring the fact that payment has already been made at Calvary's cross? You see, the soul that is in debt before God by way of its sin can never be said to to be a prosperous soul. So again, how does your soul stand before God? But the second thing you need to, we need to ask ourselves, we need to ask ourselves, when it comes to this idea of soul prosperity, we need to ask ourselves the following question. Is there anything in my life, any habit, any thought, any circumstance, anything that I'm allowing that is sapping spiritual strength from my communion and walk with Jesus Christ? Is there something that is kind of taking away everything that should be for the glory of God? Are my interests divided? Are my affections divided? Is there some sin that is keeping something of a shackle on my foot that, oh, how I would love to sprint in the ways of God, but you see... I have this shackle on my foot, which, oh, by the way, I've put there myself. And, oh, by the way, I don't need a key to take it off. I just kind of like it there. We will never prosper spiritually if there is something sapping our spiritual strength. And so we ask ourselves the question again, are we prospering spiritually? A few more things I want to say here, again, just by observation. Understand this, that, that, that those who prioritize your soul and those who spur you on to spiritual prosperity, soul prosperity, are the ones who love you the most. We come across friends who give us sometimes very wise counsel in life. Well, maybe that's not the best way to put it. They give us very helpful counsel in life to manage the things of this life. But your truest friends and those who love you the best are the ones who value your soul and see your soul as that which is ultimately the most important thing in your life. So I set before you this wonderful blessing of soul prosperity. And I hope and I pray before God that each and every one of us will know what it is for our souls to prosper. We'll know what it is to advance in this prosperity. We'll know what it is to be a blessing to others because our soul is prospering to know what it is to look into the eyes and faces of those that we love and say, yes, finally, 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 I see a prospering soul, a soul in right relation with God, a soul that loves Jesus Christ more than self, a soul that is willing, again, to have self denied in order that the Spirit of God may have his way. My friends, soul prosperity, rejoice in it. Let me not see long faces here when I speak of soul prosperity. Rejoice in the fact that that prosperity is ours in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, how we thank you that you can cause a soul to prosper, 
that you can cause true spiritual health, that you can bring your people, Father, who are oftentimes so much weighed down with the cares and the concerns, sometimes legitimate cares and concerns of this world, and yet, Father, you can bring to that soul a prosperity of of soul. And so, Father, we ask and we pray, Lord, that you would work prosperity within us, Lord, it's not as though we are not thoughtful or mindful of our physical circumstances. And we are grateful that when John prays his prayer for Gaius, he prays that his physical estate might be the same as his spiritual state. We do see the emphasis on the spiritual state. But you know, people, that you're, I'm sorry, you know, Father, that your people oftentimes have great needs, great physical, great material needs. And so I ask and I pray, Lord God, that you would indeed cause their outward state to be commensurate with their inward state. Therefore, Father, grant to them great spiritual prosperity, great soul prosperity, that they might see, Lord God, your hand of mercy and all all of your provision for them. And we ask and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.